As Daniel mentioned, I was the campus pastor at New Mexico State University, which is basically a demographic composed of a lot of brown people sprinkled with some white people. And that looks very similar here tonight, so this is somewhat of a, somewhat of a nostalgic meeting for me. Um, it's an honor, it's a pleasure to be here with you guys. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16. Growing up, my dad had a habit of dispensing wisdom through proverbial sayings. One such statement went like this. He would say, son, do not drive past midnight because awareness decreases in the dark. Now, this is great wisdom, but I was 16 years old with a new license and a fresh vehicle. My friends and I had just finished watching the Fast and Furious movies, the, you know, about racing cars recklessly. So needless to say, we very much had a need for speed. And as I was driving us home that night, I had one friend that began to antagonize me. Every one of you has this friend who antagonizes you to do something that they would never really do. And he would just keep saying... I bet you can't get this vehicle to go faster than 100 miles an hour. And like Marty McFly, which is a reference you may or may not get, not allowing anyone to call him chicken, with zero concern for the 50 mile an hour speed limit, I put my foot on the pedal like a getaway car escaping a crime. And because this vehicle was a 1995 Chevy Tahoe, <laughs> I jumped from 50 miles an hour to 100 in well over two minutes. If I was drag racing, I would have lost to a Prius. It was 12.01 in the morning. There was not a car in sight, just the passengers in my Tahoe screaming landslide by the Dixie Chicks because this story takes place in 2002 in the country of Texas. And like an angel of death appearing out of nowhere, a police car with flashing lights is immediately behind me. I pull over. All of my friends laugh because they're bad friends. <laughs> I thought the road was empty, a mistake from focusing on the speedometer to the disregard of other vehicles around me. The police officer hands me a ticket for $450. I have no job to pay it. I give the ticket to dad. Dad takes the keys. I get grounded for what feels like eternity. And before I go to bed that night, my sweet, loving father tells me, I hope you believe it now, awareness decreases in the dark. A proverb, much like this one from my father, is a profound saying, a wise precept that when followed, saves lives. But proverbs, although wise, provide no blessing unless they are obeyed. You with me? With that being said, we're going to take a look at a kingdom proverb from the Lord found in Proverbs 24, 16, believing full well that this proverb, although wise, provides no blessing unless it is obeyed. The scripture reads, for a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. For all of you expositors in the room, I apologize. We're going to pay more attention, all the attention to this first stanza to the neglect of the second stanza. So allow me to say it again. For a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again. Within this text, we're going to try to illuminate four truths found in this first stanza. What does it mean exactly to be righteous? Two, what exactly is the inevitableness of falling? Three, what happens to the righteous when they rise? And last, how? Do the righteous rise. Does that sound all right? Yeah. yeah sir. All right. I like your t-shirt. 
old school with a Nintendo controller on it. That's hilarious. Yeah, right on. Pretty soon, old school will be a t-shirt with a Nintendo 64 on it. And even pretty, pretty soon, old school will probably be a t-shirt with an Xbox 360 on it. Or even, is that old school now? You guys have an Xbox 2 now? Xbox 3? Whatever it's called. Anyway. Sorry. Your shirt has distracted me and has now ruined the sermon. So... <laughs> so. I apologize if that's offensive. Maybe he'll go to Truth later or BSM. Is that what it is? Uh, no. Which we love. We're fans of BSM. It's a great group of people. Sermon's ruined. Would you guys pray with me as we get into these four points? Dear Jesus, we love you, God. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Lord, we truly believe, as our friend Eli Stewart has said, there's two things true about anyone within any room. Everybody hurts Everybody lies, and what is very common is we often lie about being hurt. King Jesus, may you help us to be real about our circumstances, about our theology, about our context, about our scenarios, about anything and everything tonight with you, God. If we have a problem with life, I pray that we would tell you about it. And oh, Jesus, as bold and as audacious as it might sound, if we have a problem with you tonight, God, then may we be honest with you like Jeremiah and tell you about it, so that you, like Jeremiah, may speak back and... Make us prophets, Lord Jesus. We love you, God. Life really is guilty, but you are innocent. Help us to see this tonight and help us to have what you have for us tonight. In Jesus' name. In order to understand what righteousness means, we're going to look quickly at two practices illuminating unrighteousness. Borrowing the Charles Finney method in order to know what something is, we're first going to look at what it's not. I hope that's all right. Example number one. Teenage years can be considered the hardest phase when it comes to parenting children. I have not had the privilege yet of parenting this unique phase of humans. My wife and I have parented toddlers, and I have changed enough diapers and endured enough tantrums to know one little person can create very big conflicts. (laughs) But where toddlers do irrational things because they do not know better, teenagers do irrational things while fully believing that they know best. Guys are completely convinced the Axe body spray that permeates the entire high school cafeteria somehow makes them magically irresistible to the opposite sex. So long as they hold no job but smell really good, they believe they're an eligible bachelor. Teenage girls are on a mission to make sure you understand that no one understands them. Do you understand that? A guy or a girl can have tendencies as well to behave incredibly spoiled. Certainly none of you good folks here. But guys and girls can have this tendency to behave incredibly spoiled. One story I can recall epitomizes it all. A 16-year-old girl at our school had received a brand new Ford Mustang for her birthday. Not even a week into owning the car, she totals it by driving it recklessly. The following Monday, she shows up at school in a brand new Audi. We asked her, what happens if you wreck the Audi? Her response, I'll get whatever I want. I'm daddy's little girl. Now, stay with me for a moment. Even if dad has all the resources and all the love in the world, this audacious response assumes a father's patience cannot be tested. This entitled disposition assumes a father will never take away our rights in spite of our continued wrongs. This ludicrous belief actually lessens the quality of a father as a good father will not give us something too soon or too easily if it's going to harm us. 
This belief assumes we can do whatever we want and get whatever we want as if recklessness does not affect relationship. And although this may be the spirit of some teenagers, this spirit is at large with the rest of the world today. There are some people who believe the Lord's ear is always listening, forgetting Isaiah 59 two, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear any belief that this Old Testament scripture is rebuttaled by New Testament scripture is rebuked with this statement in James four. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. So you may spend it on your pleasures. There are some people who believe heaven's gates will always be open. Forgetting Jesus himself prophesied in Matthew 7, many, not a small amount, will say, Lord, Lord, which is theologically correct. They'll say we prophesied, we delivered demons, we performed many miracles, which is certainly supernatural. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There are some people who believe the Lord's unconditional love means unconditional acceptance. Forgetting that Jesus himself did not let the rich young ruler follow him because although he gave God his morality, he would not give God his money, making him a moralistic rebel that would not bow. Yes, the Lord's patience can be tested. Yes, the Lord does take away our rights because of our continued wrongs. Yes, the Lord will not give you something too soon or too easily if it will harm you. Rebellion against God impedes relationship with God. The Lord does love with an unconditional love, but God's infinite love does not entitle us to our own infinite rebellion. His love still requires our obedience as a condition to Christianity. Hence the command in John chapter 14 from Jesus himself, if you love me, you will obey me. The belief that we can disobey God while claiming to love him is called antinomianism. It's this unrighteous belief that we can live like hell believing that we are entitled to heaven. Now, that's one aspect of unrighteousness. Allow me to explain the second. Elizabeth Elliot, in her book, These Ashes, has a fictional illustration regarding Jesus and his disciples. It goes like this. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, I'd like you to carry a stone for me. He did not give any explanation. So the disciples looked around for a stone to carry, and Peter, being the practical sort, sought out the smallest stone that he could possibly find. After all, Jesus did not give any regulation for weight and size, so he picked up a small pebble, put it in his back pocket, good to go. Jesus then said, follow me, and he led them on a journey. About noontime, Jesus had everyone sit down, and he waved his hands, and all the stones turned to bread, and he said, now it's time for lunch. In a few seconds, Peter's lunch was over because he had a small pebble. When lunch was done, Jesus told them to stand up. He then said again, I'd like you to carry a stone for me. And this time Peter says, all right, I get it. I will not be fooled twice. So he looks around and he finds the biggest, largest boulder he can possibly find. He picks it up. He puts it on his back, thinking to himself, I'm having steak and lobster for dinner tonight. He hoisted on his back. It was painful. It makes him stagger. But he said, I cannot wait for supper. Jesus says, follow me. So he led them on a journey with Peter barely being able to keep up. Around supper time, Jesus leads them to the side of a river. He says, now, every one of you, take your stones and throw them into the water. They did. And then Jesus said, follow me. 
Peter and the others looked at him dumbfounded, almost angry. And Jesus sighed and said, don't you remember what I asked you to do? Who were you carrying the stone for? Is this not the attitude of the older son in Luke 15? Is this not the spirit of legalism? Obeying all the commands of God, not to get to him, but to get something from him. This spirit is especially evidence when we do not get what we want. In Luke 15, the older son throws a protest outside the father's house because he did not get the riches, which is what he really desired. In ministry, people leave churches, people leave Caiaphas because they did not get the platforms that they wanted. In Christendom, people leave Jesus because they did not get the life they wanted, which of course begs the question, were we really devoted to Jesus? Or were we using duty to put the living God in our debt? This is the second point. Unrighteousness is living like heaven to get heaven. Righteousness is not living like hell, believing we're entitled to heaven, nor is it living like heaven to get heaven. What then is righteousness? I'm going to try to explain it like this. A long time ago, some young Moravians heard of an island off the coast of the West Indies, an island populated with slaves. It was governed by a wealthy slave owner who was vehemently opposed to Christianity, so much that he declared if a preacher or a missionary was ever shipwrecked on the island, they would feed him, they would clothe him, and then send them on their way, for the owner wanted nothing to do with the gospel, nor the Jesus behind it. Clearly, this gospel-resistant slave owner was hell-bent on having a land free of God, making it difficult for Christians to fulfill the Great Commission, make disciples of all peoples, and evoke the return of Jesus, preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, and then the end will come. Difficult to minister, but not impossible. So these brave Moravians, stirred by the character of Jesus, which comes with a cause, did the only thing they could think of to reach their lost, wretched fellow man. They sold themselves willingly into slavery, So they could be sent to this island of slaves that had no ministers. They voluntarily denied their liberty. They sacrificed their freedom. They chose conflict over comfort. They hugged and cried with their family and friends as they boarded the ship to an island of no return, fully aware they would never see their loved ones again. And as the ship left the harbor, one of the Moravians leaned over the side of the boat to yell these last words, making the motive of their mission and the peace of their disposition abundantly clear. He said, May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. This became the call of the Moravian missions movement, and this is the spirit, this is the epitome of righteousness. Righteousness does refer to godly conduct and godly character, but this unique Hebrew word has another biblical meaning that we all too often miss. Righteousness refers to godly motive. To be righteous means the why behind what we do and the who we do it for is the God of glory. No one sells themselves into slavery because it looks good in the missionary newsletter. People do not become small group leaders for momentary applause. Hours lost in prayer and strategy and discipleship are not merely for a small group to grow big. You do not go on mission trips to the ends of the earth for the approval of people who are vapors but here one day and gone the next. 
Righteousness is doing all things, whether we eat or drink or lead small groups or go on mission trips or go to large group or go to leadership meeting or go to school or study or do ministry, doing all things for the glory of God. This and nothing less than this is true righteousness. And it's born when people have a revelation of the glory of the Lord. As Paris Reedhead has said, righteousness is obeying Jesus even if you go to hell at the end of the road because Jesus is worthy. Now for such a person, and I imagine that we're all stirred, for such a person we would never imagine that trouble or trial or tribulation would find them. They love Jesus. What could possibly go wrong? And in complete contrast to what we think we should be, that should, we think should be, this verse continues by saying, a righteous man falls seven times. In spite of faithfulness, there is falling numerous times, which leads to this next point. What exactly does it mean to fall seven times? There are inevitable experiences, I believe, in the life of a student leader. How many small group leaders do we have in the room? Excellent. You might relate to this, and I'm sure you small group members can relate to this as well as you watch it happen. We will invite other students to hang out on a habitual basis, right? We'll invite them to the movies, they'll say yes. We'll invite them to hiking or hunting, they will say yes. We'll invite them to coffee and they will say yes. We'll invite them on road trips and they'll say yes. We'll invite them to a mission trip and they'll respond, I'll pray about it. (laughs) For some reason... Secular activities are done in a moment's notice, but sacred activities require a pause to consider providence. How intriguing. It is inevitable for a fellow student to see you and make a contact with you at Welcome Week party that gives them free food. It's also inevitable for that same student, upon discovering Chi Alpha is a campus ministry, to make eye contact with you on campus the following week, pretend not to see you, Although you clearly see them and they see you and you've already made eye contact. And then they turn and walk the other way because they want nothing to do with Christianity. Have you been in this scenario before? In the context of small group leading, there are certain behaviors that will be inevitable for all of us to experience. Likewise, in the context of life, there are certain experiences that are inevitable that every person will experience. It is inevitable for a person to desire love. It's inevitable to experience loss. It's inevitable for someone to have fun. It's inevitable to be filled with fear. It's inevitable for someone to hope for something. It's inevitable to also be hurt by something. Splendor is inevitable. But suffering on this side of eternity is also inevitable. The word fall in the Bible is never used to convey sin the way that we use and say, oh, he fell into sin, he fell, so on and so forth. That's not a Bible idea. The word fall is never used to convey sin. It's always used, biblically speaking, to convey suffering. The reference to seven times is a Hebrew idiom used to reflect the completeness of something. In other words, to fall seven times is to suffer completely. To amplify the meaning of the verse with the Hebrew word for fall, it reads... The righteous man, the righteous person may fail completely, fall completely, be completely lost, totally perish, waste entirely away. This text is referring to inevitable suffering that comes to righteous people and drains them with anguish until they feel like there is nothing left. 
Job fell seven times when his godly character resulted in continuing catastrophe without cause. David fell seven times when it was prophesied he would be king but ran for his life, substituting a promised castle for a problematic cave. John the Baptist fell seven times when the Messiah he baptized and believed in did not stop his own wrongful imprisonment that led to his tragic beheading. The Apostle Paul fell seven times. He obeyed God by preaching the gospel he was commissioned to preach. One of his audiences responded by stoning him and dragging him outside the city to die. Do any of us relate to these people? Has obeying Jesus led to more trouble for you Instead of less, have the promises of the Lord been filled with problems? Have you, like John the Baptist, boldly and excitedly proclaimed to the masses, Behold the Lamb of God! And in moments of despair, have you, like John the Baptist, doubtfully and hesitantly whispered to the sky, Are you the Son of God? We believe in Jesus, and yet our burdens have not died. We follow Jesus, and yet answers to prayers seem to fail. We're ready to quit responsibility. We have our reasons. Our flesh tells us the logic makes sense. Our tears tell us God will understand if we leave what we promised Him we would do. Love Him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love our neighbor. Make disciples of all nations. Be witnesses to the ends of the earth. But such a reaction, according to this verse in the Bible, would not be considered righteous. A righteous person falls seven times. They suffer completely. And according to this scripture, to the Bible, the God-ordained, God-breathed Bible, they rise again. So what does it mean to rise? Look with me for a moment at the final days of Jesus. He lives sinlessly for God because he loves him and does not desire to break his heart by breaking his law. And those two are always connected. I know you believe this to be true. He lives sinlessly for us because he loves us. And the only atonement that can be made for sinful people can come from a sinless person. And as the cross that brings the love of God and the hope of man together comes near, Jesus wanders into a garden to pray. It was in a garden where the first man wrestled with his purpose and rebelled. It was in a garden where the second man wrestled with his purpose and obeyed. In this garden, Jesus, alone with his Father, with the cross and all of its shame before its success in view, prays. He wants mankind, you and I, to live in the weight of glory. But he also understands the weight of dying. And with complete intimacy, he knows the people he is dying for. And with complete intimacy, his heart is broken with grief over our sin. The cross will bring bring pleasure of salvation to all, but not before it brings the pain of suffering to one. With this scenario, in this circumstance, in this context, Jesus prays with the weight of eternity on his shoulders. Blood replaces the sweat, as the scripture tells us, falling from his face to the ground. And we hear him start his prayer. Father, take this cup from me. That's right. Have you and I ever prayed that prayer before? Not so many words. Suffering on this side of eternity 
it's inevitable. Jesus is answering the call of God, but not without conflict. Jesus loves God, but that does not save him from loss. Jesus has fallen seven times. But how does the author of our righteousness finish his prayer? He says, but not as I will, as you will. Father, take this cup from me. I don't want to drink it anymore, but not as I will, as you will, God. Our King Jesus then rose from prayer. He grabbed the cross. He drank our death. He then conquered the grave. And now he offers us a cup of life. The righteous fall seven times and yet they rise again. This is the grit of God. And in every son and daughter that is righteous, living like heaven in spite of going through hell because Jesus is worthy, these righteous people will rise again. Job worshipped again because of the almightiness of God. David endured the caves to receive a crown. John the Baptist was loyal to Jesus in death as he was in life. The Apostle Paul, after being stoned for preaching the gospel and dragged outside the city to be left for dead, gets up, spits out the blood, dusts himself off, walks right back into that same city to continue preaching the same gospel. These ministers fell seven times. They experienced suffering completely, but because they were righteous, they rose again, and they were not the same person they were from before they fell. Trial turned Job from a servant into a son. Persecution turned John the Baptist from a minister to a martyr. Trouble turned David from a shepherd to a king. Suffering turned the Apostle Paul from a scholar into a missionary. Allow me to utter Proverbs 24, 16, amplifying the Hebrew word for rise. The righteous man may fall seven times, but will abide again. Will accomplish again. Will endure again. Will get up again. Will make good again. Will lift up again. Will remain again. Will strengthen again. Will succeed again. This is what happens when the righteous rise from inevitable suffering. They're not the same people they were before. They're godlier people, grittier people, holier people. So hear me carefully. We, we will lose freshmen that we never had. We will lose friends that we did have. University resistance will grow. Large group attendance will fluctuate. Small group will have fringe and those that fall out. The majority of students will be unfaithful, unavailable, unteachable, in line with the prophecy of Jesus in Matthew 7. The unsaved will behave like thorns in our side. The saved will behave like thorns in our side. Prayers will seemingly go unanswered. Disciples will slowly submit. Honor will be a rarity in your own homes. Suffering on this side of eternity is inevitable. Do you know what I'm talking about? Will we be righteous and rise again for the one who raised us from the grave? This leaves us with only one question. How do we be righteous? The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that he is afflicted but not crushed. Perplexed, but somehow not despaired. Persecuted, but it's all right. He's not forsaken. Struck down, but don't worry. He says he is not destroyed. And he summarizes all of his suffering as, quote, momentary and light affliction. 
What causes a man who has been shipwrecked, snake bit, stoned, imprisoned to refer to such suffering as momentary and light? The answer is found in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, when he says the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul and anyone righteous with the grit to rise again, they're not blind. They see their suffering, but they also see their savior. And in the light of Christ's glory, all darkness becomes more dim when the measurableness of our suffering is compared to the immeasurable love of God, which has no bounds, his mercy, which endures forever, his forgiveness, which is as wide as the east to the west, his holiness, which makes angels sing and prophets repent. We are refueled with the grit to keep going, inspiring audible convictions such as send me. I'll go, but your word is like a fire in my bones. I cannot keep it in. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Although I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Our God will deliver us, but if not, we will not serve your gods. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. When we see the glory of the goodness of Jesus, the badness of this world does not compare. Do you see how we are to fall completely? And suffer entirely. And yet rise again. We want to work our way. Out of suffering. We think that if we're busy enough. Our suffering will somehow cease. We want to intellectually explain our way. Out of suffering. As if science and facts and logic. Can somehow end suffering. We want to deny our suffering. To get out of suffering. As if pretending that everything is okay. Will make everything no longer not okay. All These methods fail. The only way out of suffering, the only way out of suffering is to worship our way out. Grit is found by spending extravagant time with the person of Jesus. In light of all of this, I would like to close with one final anecdote. I'm not sure who wrote this originally, but I do know for all of us who are tired, for whatever reasons they might be, financially done, family life is complicated, we feel spiritually dry, disciples leave, disciples die, whatever it might be. For all of us who believe the grit to keep going is idealism, but the furthest thing from realism, this anecdote is for you. It's called a request for transfer to the Commander-in-Chief of the Spiritual Armed Forces, Jesus Christ. You're more than welcome to write this name down, Google it for later, whatever you want to do. You can find this readily on the internet. As I've said before, it is an old preaching anecdote. And if you think grit is idealism but not realism, this is for you. Dear Lord, I'm writing this to you to request a transfer to a desk job. I began my career as a private But because of the intensity of the battle, you have quickly moved me up in the ranks. You've made me an officer, and you've given me a tremendous amount of responsibility. There are many soldiers and recruits under my charge. I'm constantly being called upon to dispense wisdom, to make judgments, and find solutions to complex problems. You've placed me in a position to function as an officer, when in my heart, I know, I only have the skills of a private. 
I realize that you promised to supply all I would need for battle, but sir, I must present you with a realistic picture of my equipment. My uniform, once so crisp and starched, is now stained with tears and blood of those I have tried to assist. My boots are cracked and worn from the miles that I have walked, trying to enlist and encourage the instructed troops. My weapons are marred, tarnished, chipped from constant battle against the enemy. Even the book of regulations I was issued has been torn and tattered from endless use. You have promised you would be with me throughout. But when the noise of the battle is so large and the confusion is so great, I can neither see you nor hear you. I feel alone. I am tired. I am discouraged. I have battle fatigue. I would never ask you for a discharge. I love being in your service, but I humbly request a demotion and a transfer. Just get me out of this battle. Please, sir, your faithful but tired soldier. Shortly after, the soldier received this letter from the commander of the Lord of hosts, King Jesus. It says, Dear soldier, your request for transfer has been denied. I present my reasons. You are needed in this battle. I have selected you. And I will keep my word to supply your need. You do not need a demotion to transfer. You need a period of R&R. You need renewal. You need rekindling. I am setting aside a place on the battlefield that's insulated from sound and fully protected from the enemy. I will meet you there and I will give you rest. I will remove your old equipment. I will make all things new. You have been wounded in the battle, my soldier, but your wounds are not visible. You have received grave internal injuries. You need to be healed. I'll heal you. You have been weakened in the battle. You need to be strengthened. I'll be your strength. I'll strengthen you. I will instill in you confidence and ability. My words will rekindle within you a renewed love, new zeal, fresh enthusiasm. Report to me, tattered, broken, empty. I will refill you. Compassionately, your Commander-in-Chief, Jesus the Christ. If you are tired tonight, doubtful tonight, depressed tonight, heartbroken tonight, disbelieving tonight, skeptical tonight, one bad decision away from death tonight. If you feel done tonight, if you don't know if you can keep going, I am telling you as your national training director, you do not need more training, but you do need more Jesus. So here's how we are going to close our time. We're going to conclude with a song of worship because we have said earlier in this message what we fully believe is true. We can't deny our way out of suffering. We can't intellectually explain our way out of suffering. We have to worship our way out of suffering. And as these songs play, or this song, I'm not sure, 
What I want you guys to do is two things. I want you to worship Jesus tonight. Please worship God tonight with all you got. Let him know that he's good in spite of your scenarios being so bad. Let him know life is guilty, but he is innocent. And if you question the innocence of God tonight, I am encouraging you. Like the prophet Jeremiah did a long, long time ago. Instructed to go preach to a nation. The nation didn't want to listen to his sermons. The nation didn't want the God he preached about. Jeremiah then says, God, I wish I was never born. I wish I was dead, God. Then do what you have asked me to do. And as David Wilkerson would say, God doesn't open up the earth and swallow him whole. He doesn't shoot him with a lightning bolt for blasphemy. He says, finally... My son is being honest with me, candid with me, real with me. And now I can be real with them. You have to be honest with Jesus. If you think life sucks, don't say it's good. Then you're singing lies. You know what I'm saying? We need to be honest with God. If you want him to change your life, you better be honest and ask him to change your life. If you want bad to become good, you better be honest and stop calling bad good. You see what I'm saying? We need to be honest with Jesus. And how does Jeremiah finish his prayer? After he says, God, I wish I was dead. God, I'd rather be dead than do your work. Then comes chapter 20, verse 9, where he says, But your word is like a fire inside my bones. Indeed, I cannot keep it in. There is something about being honest in suffering that leads to sobriety within your own soul. To where you truly see God rightly. And then God can also talk to you clearly. As Winky Prattney would say, Jesus first and foremost tells you what his name is, and then he tells you your name. And as much as I hate suffering, as much as I hate trial and tribulation and all the trouble, I cannot deny that this is one of those wrestling matches where you can either come out dead or you can come out a prophet. You can come out a pastor. You can come out grittier godlier, holier. Because you've been through something with God and you did not deny Him. Right? So two things are going to happen. She's going to play a song and we need to worship Jesus. But I also ask you, before you leave this room, we need to pray for one another. The small groups that you came in with, and if you did not come with a small group, please find whoever is next to you. They would love to pray with you. We all have some sort of burden. We all have some sort of baggage. James 5 tells us, confess your sins to one another and pray so that you may be healed. Right? The epistles also tell us, perhaps your burden is in sin. The epistles also tell us that we need to carry each other's burdens. As Christ has essentially carried us. What that means is you can't live this life alone. I need you and you need me. So we got to pray for one another. And we got to worship our way out. Does that make sense? Please stand with me.